This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Permanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. Hello, hello. Welcome to a fresh view of a life world. This week, we'll be traveling from British Columbia to Bangalore, exploring how two different legal systems are revolutionizing the ways that we advocate and litigate on behalf of nature. If successful, these approaches could serve to transform the very foundations of our global system of law. They would require legal professionals to develop a whole new series of skills and sensibilities, many of which revolve around a worldview and having to understand and translate the life worlds of other beings. Hold in mind as you listen to these approaches that laws very often reflect a society's self-concept, that is to say, where we stand in terms of our moral and ethical concerns. As an example, think that over the last hundred years, we've granted rights to children, minorities, women. So what's left? Well, it turns out that nature is what's left. So we'll start by hearing from the wonderful daughter-father duo of Lindsay and John Burroughs. Lindsay and John are lawyers and members of the Chippewas of the Nawash First Nation in Ontario, Canada, and they work to transform Canada's understanding of how Indigenous and non-Indigenous law can coexist. John created the world's first dual Indigenous law program at the University of Victoria in British Columbia, and Lindsay works to support Indigenous communities in revitalizing their traditional laws for contemporary contexts. What I personally found so astonishing about this conversation is their explanations of how Indigenous law is written in the land itself, not in books or ossified archives down in a dusty basement somewhere, but that law is written in the land, and therefore nature is the professor. As professors themselves, Lindsay and John will share with us examples of case law that brim with interspecies stories and describe to us how, in their worldview and cosmology, laws are actually verbs akin to living beings. And therefore, there are really interesting ways in how they can be used to lift up Western and colonial systems of law to create a new synthesis unlike anything that the world has ever really seen. Following that, we will delve into the growing movement called the Rights of Nature and hear from our second guest lawyer from India, Abhiraj Naik, who will delve into some really fascinating components of the Rights of Nature in India and the thrilling, often philosophical new sets of questions that they open up. Abhayraj is an activist academic legal practitioner, co-founder of the Initiative for Climate Action, and a faculty member at the Azim Premji University. He holds degrees from the National Law School of India University and the Yale Law School. Whether you're a lawyer or a layperson like I am, I do encourage you to look up these approaches after the show because they're coming to a courtroom near you, and I hope to see you there. As always, thank you for listening. And if you do enjoy these abbreviated episodes, then tune in to the full hours, which can be found in all the usual places. For now, over to John and Lindsay Burrows in British Columbia, Canada.
So, John and Lindsay, welcome to Life Worlds. It's an absolute honor and pleasure to have you both here. Would you like to introduce yourselves before we get started? I'm John Boros, and from Nawash First Nation, Otter Clan, and I'm the Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Law here at the University of Victoria. Our introductions are very similar because we're both from the Otter Clan, and we're both from the same place about three hours north of Toronto on the shores of Georgian Bay. And I am a lawyer and a soon-to-be law professor at Queen's University. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you both here with us. Before we get into the really juicy part of our conversation, I would love for you guys to set the scene on your interpretation or your way of describing what Indigenous law is and what that term means to you before we just start using it in conversation. Indigenous law is the law that Indigenous peoples use to guide their lives. And I think of law as the way that we pattern ourselves in relationship to one another and to the earth as well. And so these might be stories or rules or standards or principles or processes that help us to know how it is we can live with one another. And I would say that law is for regulating affairs and resolving disputes. And it's the standards, principles, authority, criteria, measures, guideposts, signposts that we use for regulation and resolving disputes. So these processes and principles act as a way of allowing us to interact with one another with some patterns, as Lindsay said. I was really struck when I read both of your writing. You kind of upended my definition of law, and I grew up, I mean, I'm Swiss and Swedish, so I grew up in a very sort of Western-centric model of law. And we'll get into more of that in a bit, but this idea that law is a living, animate, kind of breathing force. And I was incredibly struck, Lindsay, I read one of your theses this idea that the land is the law. And John, you bring your students into the land and in a way the the land is the classroom. So maybe we could start there and you could explain what's meant. There was this quote, I think it came from you, John. It is based in stories written on the land, lived in ceremonies. And you said, go talk to the trees and talk to the plants and understand the language, understand the stories, the science and the treaties of nature which is a a beautiful, beautiful phrase. So this absolutely opened my eyes to a whole new definition of what law is. Can you speak to that relationship between law and what we call, quote-unquote, nature and the land? So law in Anishinaabemun is a verb, anakonage. 70% of Anishinaabemun is verb-based. And so law is something you do. It's something that you conjugate. And by doing it, you bring it into relationship in so many different ways and locations with different beings uh, through different times. That's what verbs do. That's what law does. And in our own legal tradition, the teachers of the law are what we find in the natural world around us. So the way a bird might behave or a watershed might interact or a, 
a bear might manifest themselves in terms of their activities, we would look to those beings and draw analogies from those behaviors to say, what can we do as humans to learn from what we're seeing there? And we would talk with one another about what it is that we're seeing there. So there's a deliberative, persuasive aspect to this. And of course, sometimes we distinguish ourselves from nature. There are things that a seagull might do that we might not do. But in that way, the archive of law is literally written on the earth. And these beings like trees or plants are professors. They give us the opportunity to understand how we might live as humans in those places where they currently are. And those are our treaties, right? The idea that we would feel a sense of connection and obligation and relationship to live in accordance with what they teach us. And so when I was growing up and spending time out on the land with my family, I was taught lots of stories about these different beings, the trees and the animals, other plants. And for example, my dad has been known to say when a robin flies by, which is a little bird, oh, there goes a flying case. And we have a story about the robin from a time before they were a bird and they were this little boy and their father always wanted him to be the best, whether it was be the best athlete or be the best leader. And he had this vision of what he wanted the robin, this little boy to be. And he just wanted to sing. That was his great love in life. And one day, the little boy disappeared and turned into the robin and was always around his father, but he was singing. And his father was so set in what he wanted his son to be that he never saw him again, even though he was always there. And so I think that's a real lesson for us in our relationships to be so open and accepting of who people really are. And when we see the Robin, you know, you're reminded of that teaching and then you're reminded of how you should act and it helps you to know how to pattern yourself and how you should be living. And I was so thrilled when I became a lawyer and went to work with the Tilkotin Nation in the central region of British Columbia in Western Canada. And when we were asked to draft some laws for them, our guide, Alice Williams, said, well, we're going to need a boat and we're going to need some horses. And she took us out on the land for about a month on a pack horse trip because she knew we needed to be in relationship with that place in order to know what the laws were and how we could then teach other people those laws. It sounds like you're uncovering a law or a lesson. And you said before, like, it's living, it's changing, it's adapting. Do you guys find in your line of work that new protocols and new laws are being brought into action, for lack of a better word? Can you discover a law? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Yes, you do discover law as well as it's being there already. Lindsay talked about this, but tradition could be the dead faith of living people or the living faith of dead people. And so for some of us, tradition is the dead faith of us who are living because we kind of put tradition back there somewhere and want to preserve it. But I think the goal is to make it the living faith of dead people that is contemporary. And as a contemporary tradition, then it does adapt and change and other things come in, even as you're 
being faithful to its roots, trying to make sure that those roots are in good soil and can be you know, strengthened through time, but there's new branches that are thrown out, new possibilities that are there. I see this in particular, Lindsay mentioned these seven grandmother or grandfather teachings that are our constitutional law, um, love, wisdom, humility, honesty, truth, respect, courage. And it's really hard to find those in the historic record, but you walk into most any Anishinaabe school and you will see these on blackboards and across tops of walls. There's about 43 constitutions that are being drafted in Ontario that are Anishinaabe, and you see them in the preamble of these constitutions, or you see them in the clauses of constitutions. Um, There's all sorts of policy documents that front the seven grandmother and grandfather teachings. Um, It's always been there, the idea of love and honesty and courage and humility, etc. But it's being organized in a way now that people can bring greater prominence to it. Um, It's a way of digesting it. It happens to connect to our seven directions, which is a helpful way of memory device that we bring forward. But it's really exciting to see that law can change, can adapt, and can even spring anew in this case. Um, Yes, there's a connection to the past, but boy, the way that this has taken off from all of those places I was mentioning to earlier on both sides of the border is quite phenomenal. I'd love to ask you, John, about your students, because the degree that you've created and set up, along with a few others, is kind of one of the world's first of its kind. I believe it is the world's first Indigenous law degree and Canada's first joint program in law. What do your, and it's a few years in now, so you probably have a better answer for this than you would have had a few years ago. What can your students go on to expect to do in the Canadian legal system? Like, what are the repercussions very tangibly for Canadian law at this also very decisive moment in time. Yes. So you're right that we have at the University of Victoria the world's first Indigenous law degree. It's a JID, a Juris Indigenous Doctorate. And the students get that at the same time as they get a JD, which is a Juris Doctorate. So they get a joint degree, two degrees. And the work that they're doing is, of course, in the classroom, but also in community. And when they graduate, and our first cohort is just graduating now, they're clerking at the federal courts of appeal and tax courts and provincial courts. They're working as apprenticing lawyers. We have an articling process here in Canada that they'll be participating in with big firms, small firms. Uh, they've worked in community settings in their, their summer periods with our Indigenous Law Research Unit. And there's a West Coast Environmental Law Group out of Vancouver that's a law firm that practices in communities and bringing that law out in that way. So there's many dimensions. Uh, They could work in a corporate setting as well, I suppose, trying to bring those insights to bear. But what we hope is two other things, that they start to recognize that this is something they can also walk around inside them with, that it's not just the value of how you might provide advice, say, to a judge or a lawyer or a community, but how are you in your relationships with the broader world. And then the idea is we're not just trying to revitalize Indigenous law, but this brings a new lens to the common law. If you start to see the common law as also a cultural construct, because you've learned it in comparison and contrast with Indigenous laws, you see where the choices are in the common law. It's no longer just a universal, taken for granted, this is the way things are done. You see, for instance, in the Cree law, that there's a duty to protect and step in if someone is being harmed. 
whereas in Canadian criminal law, that duty doesn't exist. And so, in other words, we hope that it's not just about giving opportunity for Indigenous law to flourish and for people to hopefully live more mindful lives internally in relationship to Indigenous law, but also to see the common law as something that can also be more responsive because we see the decision points that are there, things that might be otherwise taken for granted or assumed now are suddenly alive in your mind because you recognize that there is a choice there and you might not recognize that without having that trans-systemic or comparative or pluralistic experience. Can you imagine in the next few years, some of these more entrenched or ossified traditional Canadian laws would be up for questioning or for changing, and maybe stories could be brought into them or some of these fundamental principles like the seven ones that you just shared? Yes, it's already happening. We see this in environmental law, in criminal law, intellectual and cultural property, family law, there's many different areas that this is starting to just be seeded into, and the first sprouts are growing there. And so I just see that as expanding in time. It's not a panacea. It's not going to be something that is taken up in all places and times. I like the analogy that my mother taught me about when I was a kid. We would be baking together on the side of the sink, and she'd put all these dry ingredients together, the flour and the sugar and the salt and soda, etc. And I was just, you know, happy to be with her there. But she'd take this little grain, yeast, and she said, if we put this little grain in here, that's going to make a difference to the rest of the mixture. And it's going to change what it's going to look like when it comes out on the other end. It's going to cause everything else to raise. And sometimes I think that is what we're doing, just putting little grains in here and there. And it's not that everyone has to learn Indigenous law But if it's there in sufficient quantities, those little grains, I think it will have an effect on other parts of the system, on the other way that people interact. And so it's, I think, as Lindsay said, a process of invitation, a process of finding relation. And this is then with invitation and relationship, like the yeast, it's more often unseen and and reactive in ways that you can't always predict. And I think that provides me some comfort because that means that there's space for so many ways to be involved here. But with our involvement in our space, there's a chance for something to grow. And if people bring their other points of view from other walks of life, hopefully the space that's created from what's growing with Indigenous peoples and Indigenous law might you know, allow other uh, dimensions to be a part of the way we make decisions, which is about law, right? Making decisions, finding patterns for living. And what I love about this example is the rising, how the yeast lifts everything up. And I think there's a real fear held by some people in Canada that if Indigenous law is operating, then it will take away from them. It is something that might be a threat that might bring in greater uncertainty or kind of a lawlessness in in bringing in this new law. But the work we're trying to do is to show that's not the case at all. And in fact, this is something that can lift everyone up. It has that potential to speak beyond the borders of individual communities and speak more to the entire kind of legal ecology of this country. 
Don't you just love the metaphor of how a grain of yeast can raise the whole system? I'm really excited to follow the developments of the First Nations laws in Canada because I think they're setting a precedent that many other parts of the world can look to emulate. We're now going to hear from our second guest, Amperaj Naik, on the developments of the rights of nature globally and in his home country of India. A little bit about the rights of nature first. The rights of nature is a legal tool that's now present in over 15 countries and 50 cities around the world that confers the rights usually given to human beings over to other forms of life. Why does that matter? Well, to put it quite bluntly, under the current system of law in almost every country, nature is our slave. I know that sounds a little bit extreme, but factually and legally, it's quite correct. Humans own the property of nature, can use it most often for their will within some environmental constraints. And importantly, that natural being cannot represent itself independently in a court of law. So what the rights of nature does is that it formally recognizes that ecosystems and their natural communities are not merely our human property, but rather that they have their own independent and inherent rights to exist and flourish completely independently of our use of them. Imagine that under the current system of law in your country, most likely a railroad, a corporation, a school can go and claim its own rights, but a river cannot. The first country that really led the way with this transformation was Ecuador in 2008, because it was the first country that enshrined the rights of nature in its constitution and acknowledged that Pachamama, aka nature, has the right to exist, persist, maintain, and regenerate its vital cycles. So now, let's hear from Amheraj Naik to understand just why this jurisprudence approach is so groundbreaking. Thank you so much for joining us for Bangalore and for coming on the show. Good day to you. Thank you for having me here. It's such a pleasure to have you. I've really enjoyed our back and forth discussions ahead of this call. I think it would be really useful for our listeners to start off with more of a high-level perspective on the rights of nature, and then we're going to narrow in on the Indian context, which is where a lot of your expertise lies. In your experience in researching and practicing and teaching law and environmental law, what is it that you find particularly compelling around the rights of nature? How is it even different to other kinds of law, like animal rights law? I think where I'd like to begin to respond to that is with an appreciation of the potential of this discourse. When I think about rights of nature, I really see the possibility of pathways that change paradigms of environmental law and policy, right? And uh, in some sense, this paradigmatic shift or the possibility of a new worldview is what really makes talking about and thinking about and, and fighting for the rights of nature so compelling because there really is a lot at stake here, though the immediate context of a conversation around rights of nature might be a polluted river or the rights of an animal which is being subjected to a cruel treatment or even in some cases a larger landscape or ecosystem. When one begins to admit of a legal entity who is not a human, one is really going back to that fundamental question of are humans separate from nature or not, right? And are uh, 
ideas such as rights are processes that are usually associated with rights, in some sense, extensible to the non-human or the more than human. And once one allows oneself to proceed on that pathway, you really are going to the heart of what for me is the cause of our current ecological predicament, which is this idea that we are separate from nature, right? You're beginning to acknowledge that, yes, what I thought was so distinct about human beings, the fact that we write or we speak or that we walk erect on two feet or that we bury our dead. Each of these things, in some sense, finds its place in nature. And even our most sophisticated technologies, our legal technologies, our legal recourses, our legal processes, uh, in some sense, are called for in the context of responding to, in a wholesome and full way, the nature that we are implicated within or a part of. So that, I think, is what makes this discourse so compelling. It really has the potential to change the frame, to change the basic assumptions, to even decenter the human in the inquiry process. And I think that's the kind of transformative logic and transformative canvas that is really sorely missing today and is urgently required. So I see this as, in some sense, responding to many other issues, problems, blockages, challenges that come much further downstream in the legal and policy landscape. And if we really manage to have an honest, courageous, fair and transparent conversation about rights of nature and, and really explore the limits of that conversation, of that discussion, we may discover that many of our earlier unassailable assumptions are now suddenly appearing quite weak or without sound foundations. So it's nothing less than, for me, a great entryway into the kind of world that I want to be a part of, the kind of world that, in some sense, I see outlines of, but which is still very much being held at a distance by the weight and inertia of our present degenerative and separate way of thinking about nature. That's a really interesting perspective. I feel like often when people think about law, legal structures, they think of, you know, piles of papers and heavy books and jargon and and this notion that some legal mechanism or tool is actually more about a worldview and a way of seeing and that through law you can shift a society's notion of who they are, their relationship, or separation with and from nature. How is that different to an environmental law case where you're suing a company for polluting a river? Or in in your experience, because you've done quite a lot of work in the animal rights arena, how does it appear different to a lawyer or a judge or a practitioner, the court? How does the rights of nature clause kind of go beyond that and address this much deeper necessity that you're speaking to? Sure. So I think uh, in some sense, there's a substantive change both in a method and in the final content or let me say the substantive elements of the claims or interests or rights and duties that are being considered, right? And while I think the substantive content, that is, who's affected by this, what are the conflicts in the rights, what are the trade-offs, what are the synergies, All of that is of great interest. I am personally more captivated by the entirely new set of questions that get opened up methodologically, right? Because 
once you have rights of nature featured in a, a legal context, you get to questions such as, how does one know what nature wants in this context? How does one find voice for nature? Who is a legitimate representative of nature? How can I trust what this representative of nature says when this representative of nature very much is a human being like all of us, is not more than human who he, she, or they are representing? How might one cross-examine nature uh, when nature is not really in the courtroom, right? And, and as a lawyer, I constantly have these very, very fantastical visions of a river flowing in through a courtroom and saying things to the judge. But that's really what the legal process requires once you're admitting a claim founded on the rights of nature, right? You need to know in a very, very direct, truthful, and intimate way uh, the subjectivity or where the right emanates from, right? And that is nature itself. And this changes our rules of procedure, it changes our rules of standing, it changes our methods of appreciating evidence, it changes even in some sense, I would say it blurs the boundaries between the certitude of a legal science and the mystery and the possibility and the unknown of tradition, belief, culture, even spirituality and religion that more often than not are in some sense uh, surrounding that expression of the interest or the personhood or the right of nature. So these questions are of great interest to me because I think in some sense they represent the cutting edge of legal innovation, innovation around process. Uh, how does one bring in aesthetic, multisensorial, spiritual, multidimensional ways of truth-telling and narrative into a context where truth and accuracy are, are really reified, right? And if we do this well, even if we are just mindful of the interim learnings along the process, this could mean so many things for so many other contexts where the legal process is quite rightly accused of being reductionist. I mean, that's the problem with law. It's always playing catch up with the rich, dense, uh, textured nature of reality. And it's often cutting out and reducing that reality to a very linear, simplified narrative. And methodologically, these rights for nature cases are in a very real way bringing these challenges to the top of the legal system reform agenda as well. And, and they're forcing the participants of the process, uh, judges, lawyers, those who are supporting through evidence, paralegals, researchers, court reporters, analysts of the legal tradition, to be a bit more reflexive about how might we actually have a responsive legal system, a listening legal system, and a welcoming, open, evolving legal system. And for me, I mean, as a lawyer who has constantly been frustrated by the inability of the law to decisively transform social reality or in some sense has been angered by how the law is used by the rich and the powerful to further exclude the have-nots, I see rights for nature proceedings and the force fields around them as having great potential to, in some sense, uh, allow us to have an honest conversation about the kind of law and legal system we want. And the last point I'll add here is once one takes this to the constitutional level, right? The constitution 
has the distinction of being both the sort of supreme legal and political document. It's really both law and politics distilled at the same time. There you are getting into very, very weighty, but very, very important questions once again of who are we as a society or a community during this time of, let's say, a loss and breakdown, right? What kind of community do we want to be? What kind of justice system do we want to be? What kind of protections do we want to have in place? So, so yeah, for all of these reasons, these cases and these processes, whenever they appear, are of great interest to me, both as a practitioner and a researcher, not just of rights of nature, but of law and the rule of law and the connection between law and democracy in a very, very abstract sense as well. I think that law and science at large find themselves at a similar crossroads right now. As you said, law has often been seen as being incredibly reductionist. And I think that science has been accused of the same, the Cartesian way of thinking, the scientific method, the breaking up of the world into lots of little individuated parcels of concern. And yet both of those fields find themselves at a very exciting uh, juncture. With law, you have things like the rights of nature, as you've so eloquently described. With science, it's the more that ecological science, physics prods at the universe, the more it finds that everything does point to everything else, and it's impossible to take those pieces apart. And so, as you said so well earlier, rights of nature opens up a whole new set of questions. You know, who gets to speak on behalf of nature? How can we cross-examine nature? These questions are thrilling. And I don't even know if they always have a, a clean response and outcome. But I think getting society to discuss them is mostly, can mostly often be the value. And it's the same in science. These new sets of questions are opened up. Well, if this forest is not separate from X, Y, Z, then how can we really take it apart and you also mentioned something else, Sarah, that I think is really interesting. It's in that question-asking process, it's no longer things that are happening behind closed doors. And as you said, who's around the table when we're discussing the rights of nature? It opens up a conversation with civil society versus judges and lawyers, and it's something that's very separate from day-to-day -day life because in answering those questions, it's often people who live close to the species or organisms or ecosystems in question that can answer, I think, to a better degree, well, what does this river want, right? Or what does this animal want? It's not a lawyer halfway across the country who can answer that often. It's the communities that have spent time with those animals, with those ecosystems. So there seems to be also an equalizing role in this new discipline. Would you agree? Thank you. I, I think you put it uh, beautifully there, Alexa, and I, I really do see, like you, these analogous tectonic shifts or spaces for tectonic shifts in our uh, reconstitution of modern law and modern science. And I think, in some sense, the ruptures and the inspirations are coming from nature. It could be crisis related to nature, or it could be a resurgence and an, a renewed interest in let's say, uh, knowledge that comes from the grassroots, that comes from the people, that comes from the land, that comes from non-authoritative hierarchical spaces, right? Uh, what one might call subjugated knowledges, in some sense, getting freed up or finding more avenues for their expression. And uh, 
I think what really comes to mind, as you say, the ones who might best know how a river feels are, are those who spent time in the river or those who, as per their worldview, believe they are the river. They are the kith and kin of the river. And in some sense, it's a fully integral worldview. Let's get into the Indian context. You mentioned the scientist movement in Kerala and others. From what I've understood, the rights of nature in India really took off around 2013. And you have an excellent paper that I'm going to link to in the show notes. And you excavated how one judge, single-handedly mostly, of course, with some support, and maybe even an interesting place to start is what you shared with me about the constitution itself, which is another way of looking at the rights of nature within India. Thank you. So I think before I get to the 2013-14 judgments of Justice S. Radhakrishnan of the Supreme Court, I find it useful to, in some sense, return to the Constitution and, and identify a duty of all Indian citizens. And this was introduced into the Constitution in the 80s, and in some sense, uh, India's former Prime Minister Indra Gandhi was partially responsible for these series of events, right? And it's a very specific duty which each Indian citizen, in some sense, is required to discharge on account of the constitutional obligation. And it says that each Indian citizen shall have a duty to have compassion for all living beings. And it's the only constitution in the world, and I've looked through quite a few of them over the years, which has this kind of duty placed on each citizen, to have compassion for all living beings, right? And what your jurisprudence teacher will tell you in your introductory jurisprudence class will be that every duty has a corresponding right, right? So if every citizen has a duty to have compassion for all living beings, that means that there is a corresponding right in all living beings to have compassion shown to them, right? And uh, in some sense, I think that is one of the many reservoirs of strength that this judge, Justice Radhakrishnan, turned to when in a series of remarkable judgments in 2013 and 2014, he almost single-handedly created a new body of law that became applicable and binding across the country. And uh, there are a few features of this body of law. The most noteworthy is a legal constitutional mandate to move away from anthropocentric approaches to ecocentric approaches, right? I think that is the bedrock of this new jurisprudence of Justice Radhakrishnan. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. And stay tuned for a fresh Life Worlds episode coming out in two weeks' time, where we'll be going into the multi-species entanglements that you can find yourself in in our planet. As per our tradition on the show, we will end with a fun fact that will bring you in to a rather unexpected life world. So this week, we heard from Lindsay Burrows, who's written a book called What the Otter Knows. And so we're going to have a little delve into the life world of a sea otter. Chances are, if you're a sea otter, right now you'd be participating in a massive floating cuddle puddle. What otters do when they're out at sea is that they can rest in groups called rafts, where up to a thousand otters can be entangled in each other, wrapped in seaweed to keep drifting away. Sounds like a fun kind of party. All right, that's it for me. I would love to hear from you. So please reach out to me on the lifeworlds.earth website, where you can also find all of the show notes and an open source library ranging on everything from ecology to technology and life at large. 
subscribe to the email list, and I'll see you back here soon. Bye.